0: chapter 24 of gossip in a library this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by eugene smith gossip in a library by edmund goss chapter 24 the duke of rutland's poems england's trust and other poems by lord john manners london printed for jg and j rivington st paul's churchyard and waterloo place pall mall eighteen forty one my newspaper informed me this morning that lord john manners took his seat last night in the upper house as the duke of rutland these little romantic surprises are denied to americans who do not find that old friends get new names which are very old names in the course of a night my transatlantic readers will never have to grow accustomed to speak of mr lowell as the earl of mount auburn and i firmly believe that mr howells would consider it a chastisement to be hopelessly ennobled but my thoughts went wandering back at my breakfast to-day to those far-away times the fresh memory of which was still reverberating about my childhood when the last new duke was an ardent and ingenuous young patriot who never dreamed of being a peer and to hoped to refashion his country to the harp of amphion so i turned with assuredly no feeling of disrespect to that corner of my library where the peches de jeunesse stand the little books of early verses which the respectable authors of the same would destroy if they could and i took down england's trust 50 years ago a group of young men all of them fresh from oxford and cambridge most of them more or less born in the purple of good families banded themselves together to create a sort of aristocratic democracy they called themselves quote, "young england" end quote. and the chronicle of them is it not patent to all men in the pages of disraeli's coningsby in the hero of that novel people saw a portrait of the leader of the group the honourable george percy sydney smythe to whom also the poems now before us parvus non parvae pignus amicitiae, were dedicated in a warm inscription the sidonia of the story was doubtless only echoing what smythe had laid down as a dogma when he said quote, man is only truly great when he acts from the passions never irresistible but when he appeals to the imagination." It was the theory of young England that the historic memory must be awakened in the lower classes, that utilitarianism was sapping the very vitals of society, and that ballads and maypoles and quaint festivities and processions of loyal peasantry were the proper things for politicians to encourage. It was all very young, and of course it came to nothing but i do not know that the primrose league is any improvement upon it and i fancy that when the duke of rutland looks back across the half-century he sees something to smile at but nothing to blush for one of the actions that young england had got hold of was that famous saying of fletcher of saltoon's friend about making the ballads of a people so they set themselves verse-making and a quaint little collection of books it was that they produced all smelling alike at this time of day with a faint faded perfume of the haystack countrified and wild mr smythe who presently became the seventh viscount strangford and one of the wittiest of morning chroniclers only to die bitterly lamented before the age of forty wrote historic fancies mr faber then a fellow of university college oxford and afterwards a leading spirit among english catholics published the churwell water lily in eighteen forty and on the heels of this discreet volume came the poems of lord john manners when england's trust appeared its author had just left cambridge almost immediately afterward it was decided that young england ought to be represented in parliament where its utopian chivalries, it was believed, needed only to be heard to prevail. Accordingly, Lord John Manners presented himself, in June 1841, as one of the conservative candidates for the borough of Newark. He was elected, and so was the other Tory candidate, a man already distinguished, and at present known to the entire world as Mr. W. E. Gladstone, on the Hustings, Lord John Manners was a good deal heckled, and in particular he was teased excessively about a certain couplet in England's trust. I'm not going to repeat that couplet here, for after nearly half a century the Duke of Rutland has a right to be forgiven that extraordinary indiscretion. If any of my readers turn to the volume for themselves, which of course I have no power to prevent their doing, they will probably exclaim, quote, was it the duke of rutland who wrote that quote. for a frequency of quotation is the hallmark of popularity his grace must be one of the most popular of our living poets there is something exceedingly pathetic in this little volume its weakness as verse for it certainly is weak had nothing ignoble about it and what is weak without being in the least base has already a negative distinction the author hopes to be a Lovelace or a Montrose, equally ready to do his monarch's service with sword or pen. The Duke of Rutland has not quite been a Montrose, but he has been something less brilliant and much more useful, a faithful servant of his country, through an upright and laborious life. The young poet of 1841, thrilled by the Tractarian enthusiasm of the moment, looked for a return of the high festivals of the church, for a victory of faith over all its pain and foes quote, the worst evils he writes from which we are now suffering have arisen from our ignorant contempt or neglect of the rules of the church quote. he was full of newman and pusey of the great oxford movement of eighteen thirty seven of the wind of fervour blowing through england from the common room of oriel now all is changed past recognition and with perhaps the solitary exception of Cardinal Newman, preserved in extreme old age, like some precious exotic in his Birmingham cloister, a Duke of Rutland may look through the length and breadth of England without recovering one of those lost faces that fed the pure passion of his youth. And which brought the flame from Oriel to the Cambridge scholar was that of Reverend Frederick William Faber and a great number of poems in england's trust are dedicated to him openly or secretly here is a sonnet addressed to faber which is very pleasant to read dear friend thou askest me to sing our loves and sing them fain would i but i do fear to mar so soft a theme a theme that moves my heart unto its core o friend most dear no light-request is thine, albeit it proves thy gentleness and love that do appear when absent thus, and in soft looks when near. Surely, if ever two fond hearts were twined in a most holy mystic knot, so now are ours. Not common ones are the ties that bind my soul to thine. A Dear Apostle thou, I, a young neophyte, It yearns to find the sacred truth, and stamp upon his brow the cross, dread sign of his baptismal vow. The apostle was only twelve months older than the neophyte, who was in his twenty-third year, but he was a somewhat better as well as a stronger poet. The Cherwell Water Lily is rather a rare book now, and I may perhaps be allowed to give an example of Faber's style. It is from one of many poems in which, with something borrowed too consciously from Wordsworth, who was the very Apollo of young England, there is yet a rendering of the beauty and mystery of Oxford, and of the delicate sylvan scenery which surrounds it, which is wholly original. There is a well, a willow-shaded spot, cool in the noontide gleam, with rushes nodding in the little stream, and blue forget-me-not, set in thick tufts along the bushy marge with big bright eyes of gold and glorious water-plants like fans unfold their blossoms strange and large that wandering boy young hylas did not find beauties so rich and rare where swallow-wort and pale bright maiden's hair and dog-grass richly twined a sloping bank ran round it like a crown whereupon a purple cloud of dark wild hyacinths a fairy crowd had settled softly down and dreamy sounds of never-ending bells from oxford's holy towers came down the stream and went among the flowers and died in little swells these two extracts give a fair notion of the tractarian poetry with its purity, its idealism, its love of nature, and its unreal conception of life. Faber also wrote An England's Trust, before Lord John Manners published his, and in this he rejoices in the passing away of all the old sensual confidence, and in the coming of a new age of humility and spirituality. Alas, it never came. There was a roll in the wave of thought, a few beautiful shells were thrown up on the shore of literature and then the little eddy of tractarianism was broken and spent and lost in the general progress of mankind we touch with reverent pity the volumes without which we should scarcely know that young england had ever existed and we refuse to believe that all the enthusiasm and piety and courage of which they are mere ashes have wholly passed away they have become spread over a wide expanse of effort and no one knows who has been graciously affected by them who shall say that some distant echo of the sherwell harp was not sounding in the heart of gordon when he went to his african martyrdom it is her adventurers whether of the pen or of the sword that have made england what she is but if every adventurer succeeded where would the adventure be The Duke of Rutland soon repeated his first little heroic expedition into the land of verses. He published a volume of English ballads, but this has not the historical interest that makes England's trust a curiosity. He has written about church rates and the colonies and the importance of literature to men of business, but never again of his reveries in Neville's court, nor of his determination to emulate the virtues of King Charles the martyr no matter if all our hereditary legislators were as high-minded and single-hearted as the new duke of rutland the reform of the house of lords would scarcely be a burning question chapter twenty four